Welcome to the Research Reimagine podcast, brought to you by Nottingham Trent University. I'm your host, Helen Darby-Dowman, and I'll be inviting some of NTU's brightest minds to explore how their research is helping us to deepen our understanding of the world. From online addictions to transgender rights and sleep disorders, listen as we discuss some of society's most pressing challenges and uncover some of the ways our research is making a difference. In the UK, Black History Month happens every October, giving everyone the opportunity to share, celebrate and understand the impact of black heritage and culture. As October is drawing to a close, we've brought together speakers from NTU to reflect on Black History Month and the ideas, issues and concerns that drive and inspire their research in the US and the UK. I'm joined by Panya Banjoko and Professor Sharon Monteith from our School of Arts and Humanities, Panya completed her PhD here in 2022 and has lectured here in creative writing and practice. She is a renowned poet and a key figure in Nottingham's arts and culture community. She founded the Nottingham Black Archive. Sharon is a distinguished professor of American literature and cultural history and her interdisciplinary research focuses on literary activism, African-American and black British print and visual culture, the American South, the US civil rights movement and massive resistance to civil rights in the 1950s and 1960s. Hi Sharon, hi Panya, thank you so much for joining us today. Pleased to be here, thank you. We're nearing the end of Black History Month, which takes place in October every year. What do you think about Black History Month as a concept? I guess neither of us think that it should last a month, Um, but there were good reasons why it did in the first place. It was um, an African-American concept and was brought together in order to showcase black historical writing and writing by black people at a time when that was absolutely needed. I think it continues to be needed. It will always be needed, probably. Um, But for us, I mean, obviously, um, it takes place in February in the US, October in the UK. And we took it up in the 1980s. I'm not quite sure, actually, I think. I mean, it's it's longer ago than we think yeah. um, that we started doing this. Mm. But, I mean, for us, it's been Black History 365, hasn't mm. it? Not, mm. Which Nottingham Trent University does inspire and adhere to, um, as opposed to Black History Month. So I guess it's what we're doing full-time, isn't it? Yes, yeah. I mean, <clears throat> yeah, I, um, I know that I personally have been delivering uh, workshops or talks, etc., on Black History Month from uh, the early 90s. So that gives you some indication of the, the timing. But in terms of um, is, it, is it something, um, you know, uh, in, in looking at whether uh, the month and, and whether it's a good thing or not, um, yes, it's good in the sense that what it does at this period of, of time is it, it raises awareness of issues um, and the history of um, black people's contribution to to, to the world, it would be good to see it move into being something that's integrated um, and is not necessarily celebrated over 31 days, but actually permeates at 365. Um, um, Yeah, I think what we need to move to is seeing Black History Month as world history. Um, and, and, and this kind of division of seeing it as a particular piece of history that has to sit uh, in, in a particular way rather than actually it's world history, it's everybody's history. Everybody should know about the contributions of all people uh, to humanity and civilization. So I'd really like to see it 
progressing along those lines. I mean, I know when I was doing a little bit of reading, um, it was talked, say, in some of the articles I read about, was that obviously is a lot about the education, certainly, say, for younger people and with schools. Um, and that actually it isn't, it doesn't have to be just obviously the month of October. I mean, schools have a, a free reign to introduce black history into all walks of their history lessons. I mean, is this kind of what, when you say, you know, it needs to be all year round, is that kind of where you're, you're thinking in terms of the education side of it? Absolutely. I mean, if you study the sciences, I wonder how many um, budding sciences will come up against people like Lewis Howard Latimer. Uh, so, you know, uh, and if you're studying nursing, do you come up across Mary Seacole? Um, so these histories could be embedded into the curriculum um, to, to, to help add texture to it and to show uh, the, the things that black people have done. Charles Drew, who um, did, developed the mechanism for storing blood so that we can give people today blood transfusion. So these are things that should be studied as part as, of a, a nursing qualification or a part of the sciences, but they're not. And I don't understand why something as important as that isn't highlighted. That's what I don't understand. I think that the point is that it's all our history and that, you know, we may choose to segment it out and think that awareness is still very necessary because it is really necessary. Um, I think the difficulty is whether schools do have the freedom to introduce or see that they do, because in these years, I mean, I was a school teacher in the very early 1980s, and we had a lot more freedom then to teach what we liked. So that, you know, in the classroom, if students started to talk on a particular issue, you might decide, well, they need to talk about that. Let's talk about that. Whereas the national curriculum and all its permutations has made education more rigid, in my view. I mean, I'm thinking back to the 1970s. You know, it was always To Kill a Mockingbird that featured on the school curriculum, wasn't it? So that, you know, if you were going to talk about race then that was where you were going to talk about it in the work of a white writer published in 1960 and set in the 1930s, so safely packaged in the past and in the US, not in the UK, so that you would talk about racism, how to walk in someone else's shoes was the kind of moral that came through the text. But I don't remember the curriculum being much more diverse when I was a student. It certainly was when I was a teacher, because you could choose to make it so. But I'm often looking through the, the literary texts that, that students study and thinking, it's still not happened. It's still not as diverse as it should be. It's not any, as inclusive as it should be. Um, and I guess you can't think about black history however many ideas there are within that, African, Caribbean, Africa, and the, and the whole kind of continent is very complex, without thinking about the history of white supremacy, without thinking about slavery and colonialism, without understanding that some of the very real historical and material realities um, that drive us thinking about black history are also inextricably bound up with the ideology of white supremacy. And, you know, white privilege is not a new thing. It's always been encoded within systems and processes. So I think it's, 
we want to inspire. And the people that Panya was talking about are truly inspiring. And people don't know enough about mm. them. Mm. You know, Mary, Mary, Mary Seacole, maybe. Mm. Yes, maybe a little bit more about her. What I tend to find uh, with with uh, Black History Month and how it is curated by uh, mainstream organisations is that, is that it, it, it generally uh, centres around trauma. So we'll look at uh, colonialism, we'll look at slavery, etc. Et um, and that can be uh, off-putting for uh, black people who are part of uh, an establishment or an educational institution when this is the, the area of black history that's being studied. And I, again, I feel there needs to be a much broader thinking about what can be studied or discussed at Black History Month uh, time. So I think things like um, debates around should the Colston statue have been um, de defaced and, and, and pulled down or not? I think these are should uh, it be put in the, the museum? Exactly. Should I think, it be put with something else? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think that we can, you know, modernize Black History Month and talk about current issues and use that as a framework to then uh, look at colonial history uh, and, and, and so on. So uh, th there's a lot there that still needs to be tinkered with. So do you feel it's very boxed? You know, like subjects are kind of quite linear rather than actually like you were discussing then that, that you kind of cross everything together and it becomes a far more of a conversation rather than little little snippets of education i think the uk has a particular way of celebrating black history and it and it, it seems to uh, always lean towards america so if you're studying uh, looking at black history month here in the uk you're going to come across uh, martin, martin luther, luther king, king malcolm, malcolm x, x. <laughs> You know, Rosa Parks. Yes. You're going to come across these as though there are no uh, black, uh, substantive black heroes here in the UK. And that, again, is a issue. But what were you going to say? I was going to say two things. One, you've made me think from saying that, that, you know, we have delivered lectures about um, the civil rights movement in the UK in the 1960s. We often go back to the Bristol bus boycott mm. um, in 1963 as, as an obvious example. But, you know, we've, we've done that. I think it's absolutely true that kids in UK schools know more about African-American history and the civil rights movement in the US than they do about the UK. Mm. And that's inevitable in some ways, um, but we do need to address that and we need to continually address that. I think the other thing I was going to say about black history in the UK is when you talk about it being made more complicated or um, more inclusive, I think we do need to understand that um, that history includes things like Islamophobia. You know, that there are black Muslims. In other words, that the global majority is more complex than just thinking, what do we mean when we talk about black? You know, and, and it's not a monolith. Mm. It's a heterogeneous category if we use it and, and choose to use it in the same way that white is. You know, and white is, is a race and an identity, and it's also hugely complex. So I think there's a lot for us to think about always. Just while we're still talking about kind of this... Black History Month aspect. Obviously, it did start in the US. What What is the differences, say, that you would see between what they do in, in the US and how that's evolved? Because it started a long time before it did in the UK. And what we, you know, how it migrated into the UK or how we took it on. 
although I deliver workshops around Black History Month and do lots of talks, etc., I, I don't personally involve myself in it in that way because I, I, I just don't for a variety of different reasons. I mean, the, the, one of the things that I will say in, in comparison between the, the UK and the US in Black History Month is that at least here in the, the UK, we have the longest month, one of the longest months to celebrate <laughs> it. Uh, but, but, but in the US, they only have 28, maybe possibly 29 days in which to, to, to celebrate it. And I'm sure that has an, an impact. I I I, um, I I do sometimes get tired with Black History Month, although I understand its importance in raising awareness, because um, you know we, we, I feel we need to be moving beyond that, and I I want to steer conversations and discussions to how we can move beyond uh, what it is now, which is this celebration over thirty one days here in the UK, and I know some organisations like Nottingham Trent University are trying to say, look, it's Black History Month 365, but we haven't quite migrated into that yet. And for us to begin looking, not so much at, at Black history, but incorporating, incorporating this into world history. So yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm slightly frustrated as, 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 a, as a Black person with why are we not moving on? Because like I said, from the, the early 1990s, I've been doing what I'm doing now, which is what, 30 years, 30, just over 30 years on. So it, it, it becomes a little bit um, tedious for me. So do you feel the progression actually hasn't, it hasn't really gone that far? No, I don't think it has because we, we called then, and you can really interrupt me, uh, Sharon, and tell me I'm wrong, uh, but, but we called then for the Black History be, to be uh, part of the, the school curriculum, and it, and it, and it, it isn't. It's, it happens on an ad hoc basis, depending on whether you have a good teacher in place who will diversify their uh, curriculum for their particular class. So we haven't really moved on in, in, in terms of that. Um, and I would like to see something um, much more sustainable, much more embedded within the structures of this society rather than just this frilly uh, thing that happens um, once a month. I mean, Audrey Lord, she talks about, when she talks about change, she, she talks about not just this uh, um, a, a, a slight shift. She talks about concrete, you know, concrete changes. And that's what I'd like to see. I'd like to see the government saying this should be studied by all schools here in the UK. And this is the responsibility of all uh, organisations and educational institutions. This is where I'd like to see it progress to. There's a very interesting article I was reading the other day, and I've been trying to rack my brains as to who wrote it. But it's about um, the importance of representing black leisure, mm. rest, mm. people being quiet, people being happy. And obviously you can look at uh, visual culture art film media um, for representations of that but I think it comes back to this idea that history is not always and only about trauma and that subjective histories are really important and community histories and you know the warmth and the support within communities as well within families so I think you know that's something else that we perhaps don't always get time for. I do think that um, we do follow the US in terms of focusing on the key civic 
civil rights leaders, known names. And one of the things that Panya and I have always been trying to do is to tell the story of unsung activists. They're often community activists. They're often people that we need to recover. So we often think of what we do as recovery research because we need to try to uncover stories that benefit communities and that we need to hear and you know give back stories to people. And that's one of the things that, mm. Tanya, you've been doing with Nottingham Black Archive mm. in particular and some of the projects um, around that. Did you want to say something about yeah, that? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, so, for example, um, Oswald George Powell, um, you know, we've been able to um, get his name more well-known. He was a World War II radar operator after his service um, in the Royal Air Force. He then uh, came to England and he began a, a lifelong career of campaigning for racial equality and justice. He was instrumental in diversing uh, Rally Industries employment practices. Um, amongst many other things, he helped to establish the first uh, African Caribbean Community Centre here in the city, uh, helped to set up um, campaigning groups like the Black People's Freedom Movement, uh, worked towards uh, supporting black children through the supplementary school movement as well. So he did a lot that benefited families and communities here in this city. And not many people knew about him until we, Nottingham Black Archive, started to spread that information. And he's one of the people, and there's people like Lee Arboyne, Leonora Arboyne as well, and the work that she has done with the Black Supplementary School movement and in schools as well. She used to work um, in uh, a secondary school here in the city, and she helped to diversify the curriculum there and do peer-to-peer -peer um, learning with teachers as well so that they could then go on and deliver a diverse curriculum. So we have all of these wonderful people here in Nottingham doing all of this fantastic work, um, but they're always in the shadow um, because we cast our eye towards um, the US for role models and heroes, uh, which I don't understand why. So Panya, tell us a little bit more maybe about the, the Nottingham Black Archive. Like how did you, how did it come about and kind of how did you find all this information and, and, and a little bit more actually how you share that within the city would be really nice. Well, Nottingham Black Archive was founded in 2009 and it came about because of my disillusionment with the heritage sector here in Nottingham. Um, what was happening at that point is when, whenever um, the, the heritage sector decided to do something around uh, black history, heritage and all culture, it was always a, a particular strand of that. And it was generally around slavery. Um, there was nothing that really documented or charted our campaigning activities here in the city um, or how we uh, coped with being in an environment that was hostile towards us uh, during the Windrush phase, 1948 and through the 60s and the 70s. Um, and so disillusioned with that, I, I felt the world, the best thing to do, um, as Audre Lorde says, is use that anger, um, uh, you know, for agency. And so the, the, the logical thing to do was to set up an archive. And, and that's what happened. The community um, 
donate things to it, we accession it in, and we make it accessible in a variety of different ways through exhibitions. So we've had exhibitions at Bonington Gallery, for example, touring exhibitions that's gone to Derby, Leicester, and London. Um, and more recently, I was at Bink's Yard doing a pop-up, I had a pop-up archive, so we had some of the artifacts out in the open and made sure that they were, they were safe. It was on a glorious day um, so that the community can come and see that. We have publications as well. We produce films and uh, do talks. And so it's made accessible in all those different ways. And what kind of impact have you seen so far from it? I think there's been a massive impact. Uh, Yesterday I was, um, no, it was actually on Tuesday, I was doing a talk at Bromley House Library and I was talking about how I harnessed my anger because I was uh, very angry at the heritage uh, sector here in Nottingham for not representing my culture in a meaningful way, especially as we've contributed through our services to not only World War Two but World War One and many other ways, the National Health Service, etc. Et so I was very angry um, about that. This work that Panya did was also the subject of your PhD study. So she mined the archive she created. And I think what, thinking about Nottingham Black Archive is sometimes thinking about black history too, because stories are fragmented. They're not easy to piece together, Mm -hmm. to find. And, you know, I've trawled through lots of archives, usually in the US, in order to, to recover the histories that I write. But what Panya needed to do was basically to to scan the city. You know, all those people accessioning. Mm. You've even had um, tour boys, mm. um, sideboards full of things mm. donated, haven't you? As well as people's papers and photographs and. Yes, uh, and someone has um, a small desk that belonged to Len Garrison. Oh, great. uh, That they're going to be donating to the archive. And also some poetry, unpublished poetry, but poetry that Len Garrison wrote. uh, Unpublished poetry? uh, Yeah, during his his tenure at the ACFF Centre. So just imagine, just imagine how that's going to um, inform. So Garrison was really important. Yes. Because he was asking the black community where are our monuments yes absolutely absolutely but going back to the point of what impact this has uh on the city i've noticed since nottingham black archives um was founded in 2009 that the black community itself has got much more pride in its history and its culture. So you see lots more um, projects popping up uh, around black history and culture. In terms of the heritage sector, uh, I think what Nottingham Black Archive did was to embarrass them um, because there was a gap in their provision. So it embarrassed them. And because of that, then they do reach out uh, to the archive and, and ask us to do various pieces of work with them. Um, so it's it's had that impact where it's made organisations or some organisations think a little bit more about what they provide. And, you know, you're saying you're uncovering this history of local people, of real heroes, you know, things that activists within their heritage, you know, is that something that's happening wider than just Nottingham? 
I mean, you've got um, Black Cultural Archives, which is the national um, archive. Um, and then there are different organisations around the country. So uh, in Northamptonshire, they have a Black History Project there. Uh, in Birmingham, the Black Archive is really centred around Van Lee Burke. Uh, he, he's a documentary photographer and he's been documenting the Black community for I think something like 60 years. He's been doing that. So it's very much centred around his archive but his archive is also part of uh, Birmingham Library so it's migrating now into the mainstream um, archives uh, yes there is a, an archive in Sheffield um, and new ones springing up all the time I know that Derby is also de developing an archive there and Leicester is developing an archive there too so they, they are springing up around the country one of the really good projects of many that Nottingham Black Archive did that I remember in particular was about um, World War I soldiers. And the reason that I'd, I'd highlight this project is because Panya's work um, in Nottingham Black Archive is one of the few, I think, that has been inclusive of the South Asian community in the city as well. So this was a project that brought together people whose ancestors had fought in World War I, sometimes their fathers or their grandfathers, their uncles, had fought in World War I, but from Africa, the Caribbean, um, India, what is now Pakistan. And so it brought together the city around trying to recover the stories of some of these soldiers, partly because they'd been forgotten, because there was a horrible history around um, cannon fodder, and you know there were some there were some demonstrations against brutality. There were some difficulties. There was a lot of bravery. Um, but one of the things that really struck me emotionally was that Nottingham Black Archive managed to recover the history of one individual soldier who'd been born in Jamaica mm. and finally settled in Nottingham. His family and his daughter was quite elderly at the mm. time and. Nottingham Black Archive returned to her the documents that could be found about her father's service and celebrated him for his bravery in a way that was incredibly moving to that lady. And she died shortly afterwards, mm, didn't she? Yes, yeah. And we, yeah. I like to think that we gave her some peace because mm. uh, she'd been bottling up this anger for, she was in her 80s. So she'd been bucking, bottling up this anger since her childhood that her father had uh, uh, volunteered uh, to fight in, in, in the British West Indian Regiment. So it was a, a volunteer regiment, you know, he's not being paid to do this. It was treated badly. If you know anything about the British West Indian Regiment, you know that when um, uh, soldiers went from the Caribbean, they weren't given appropriate clothing. Many suffered from frostbite, many had to have uh, uh, limbs amputated as a result of that. Uh, he was, you know, it's war, so he's not facing a, a happy time, he's facing brutality. He comes back to the Caribbean um, suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder and never gets any kind of care for that. And then to add insult to injury, when war is being commemorated, uh, whether it's World War One or World War Two. 
the black troops are forgotten. And so she was very angry about this. Um, and we gave her some peace because we celebrated, you know, we commemorated his uh, contribution to the First World War. And that's, again, something that the mainstream should have been doing. They, you know, they were very happy to have all, as you said, uh, Sharon, all of this cannon fodder. But, um, yeah, didn't really treat people with the dignity and respect that they deserve. The World War One project um, was under the auspices of the Arts and Humanities Research Council. Um, so it was one of those examples where, as an academic, I could apply for the funding. But the project was led by Panya, the Nottingham Black Archive. So the work was conducted in the main by Nottingham Black Archive. And I think that's one of the really good examples of universities and um, partner organisations working together to do what the partner organisation wants to have happen, not necessarily what the university feels it might. That seems to me the purpose of um, collaborative partnerships. Um, I think the other thing about this project is that it was dealing with difficult emotions. And that, I think, is something that both of us do. So although Panya's been talking about perhaps trauma shouldn't be at the centre of what we do, at the same time, we are always recognising the kind of difficult emotions, whether they are rage or anger or <coughs> resentment or upset, because they are, they are historical, they're material, there are good reasons for those emotions. So I think the kinds of histories that we look at can't ignore those either. And um, the World War I project was totally inspiring. In fact, it was the first time, wasn't it, Panya, that the black poppy wreath was laid yeah. formally in the city of Nottingham yeah. um, as a result of, of that project. So that inclusivity about recognising other histories was evident um, in that moment too. When did, when did this take place? The project was part of the Arts and Humanities Research Council's Hidden Histories um, idea and it took place over 2016 to 2017. In fact I think the research started in 2016 and then the touring exhibition that came out of it began touring and finished in December 2017 because it it finished at Black Cultural Archive in, yes. in London mm -hmm. after having toured obviously Nottingham, most of the libraries, so community centres. So it really was by the people for the people yeah. in many ways. I mean, can you talk to me a little bit about some of the responses you get from the communities with the work that you're doing when you're uncovering this kind of, this history? You know, it brings some of that to life for us. Although lots of the methods and approaches that we share cross over between the US and the UK, um, <clears throat> my work has been more for communities in the US. So um, in terms of my last book which was about the student nonviolent coordinating committee um, which was founded in 1960 in the US South and it came together through students who've been on the freedom rides the sit-ins in 1960 the freedom rides in 1961 and who came together and embedded themselves in some of the most recalcitrant places in the US South. So in African-American communities where people were not allowed to vote, where they weren't allowed to register to vote, where they were under threat, constant racial terrorism. 
And, you know, these were very courageous um, young people then. And there had already been at least two really good histories of SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, one by Clay Carson and the other by Wesley Hogan. But what I discovered and what I started to trace was that this organisation had a narrative culture, a print culture, a literary history, a literary legacy. And that that wasn't, people didn't know about that. That wasn't something that was discussed in those books. And it came about because I started to picture the fact that it seemed very strange to me originally that um, while people were embedded in these places, working on voter registration drives, setting up freedom schools, that they could even have the time to write. But they were writing novels, poetry, short stories, all kinds of things. And then I came across um, something by Julian Bond. He was the communications director for the um, organization. And he said that um, people in projects in southwest Georgia were writing furiously like frustrated novelists. And I thought, hmm, that's interesting. And tracing it, it was clear that what he actually meant was their field reports. So this was a very writerly organization. Um, every time they went into a project, they would write a report that distilled what was happening. They'd send it back to the head office. Um, they'd be asking for supplies, more money, more help. They'd be saying how many people they registered to vote that week. And everybody was told to write it down, keep writing it down. But reports, press releases, um, affidavits, these can be very cramped containers for people who want to write. And a lot of these people had studied history, literature, philosophy at university, politics, um, or dropped out to become activists. So it became clear that they wanted to pursue their lived experience and that of the communities with which they were working in different forms. And that fiction can often be a very safe space to explore ideas that are really difficult otherwise to talk about. So some of those emotions, the difficulties, the regret, the anger, the frustration, the denial and delay, whether it's the federal government, the murder of your peers, you know, all those things were really emotional. So over years, probably took me about 10 years to kind of put together this history. And I think why it mattered for the group was that SNCC, activists now and they have a legacy project SNCC Digital which is truly amazing um, they're in charge of their own narrative um, very much now but what became apparent was they really didn't know that their colleagues their peers were writing about them you know demonstrations they'd been in experiences they shared they I don't think they were even aware of themselves often as creative imaginative writers so if somebody wrote a history journalism that seemed to be valued but the idea that activism happens in literary forms was less apparent. So I think what I wanted to do for the group was to give that literary history back um, to say, you know, there is one. Um, SNCC has a substantial literary history. And what really pleased me was that the activists bought coffees, gifted them to their children, um, especially the writers in SNCC. Um, and the project was even cited to, um, to help support a freedom house in Atlanta to make it a list of building. So I think sometimes 
you're doing, you're working on your own, as I was. You know, you're mining all those archives, but you do have a sense of who it might benefit if you can tell the stories that you're trying to piece together. Yeah, I, I agree. And it, with you talking there, it's, it's making me think about here in Nottingham and the fact that through my uh, PhD, I added texture to the fact that Nottingham was a um, a regional branch of the Caribbean artist movement, which was a, a seminal movement, a collective of um, artists spanning many different disciplines that came into being in the 1960s, uh, spearheaded by uh, Dr. Edward Kamal Brathwaite. And when I see uh, students, uh, when I do a talk and I see students actually, you know, um, realizing that the black literary history, the black artist history is much longer than we've been told it is. Uh, you know, I've heard many times um, academics too saying there is no black literary history here in the city, but I've proved that to be not the case. Um, and in fact, uh, earliest examples of political literature you can find here being published right here in Nottingham from the mid-1950s. So we do have that history, and we have that history of connecting um, with collectives nationally and internationally. So, you know, it, it, it's, it's really good for the community when they can see actually, well, no, we do have a longer history, and, it, um, and it's an important history, and then that hopefully will inspire them to go on and create more history. That's what I'm hoping. I mean, Panyo, I know that you've written a lot of poetry. Can you tell us a bit about that and, and kind of where it comes from and how you create it and also kind of the impact that that's had? Yes, certainly. Um, <clears throat> my first uh, collection of poetry, which I published in, um, which was published in 2018 uh, and is called Some Things. I think that is the collection that really embodies the frustration and anger of being a second generation um, what do you call me, migrant, immigrant? I don't know what I'm, born in this country. British, I don't know what I am. Um, you know, um, so it captures the frustration and the anger um, there. My uh, second uh, publication now delves more into archives and is trying to make a creative intervention in uh, by trying to bridge that gap between what uh, mainstream archives hold and what they, what is hidden. So it's bringing to, to life some of those hidden voices um, and amplifying them. But um, in the main, I have been known for writing poetry that um, is issue-based and speaks uh, about social uh, injustice and, and racism in particular. I think, and going back to what we talked about at the beginning, where Black History Month can sometimes be a, a, um, a month where all, all that is happening is we're sharing trauma. Um, I think there's part of that, not wanting to perpetuate the, tra the trauma for the, the younger generation coming through and offering them something something new, um, that my my third collection that's in progress actually steps completely away from uh, activism and racism etc and, and and deals with much more global themes like love and relationships and and i think maybe i just need that that downtime away from all the hard stuff uh, to do that but also 
thinking about it. I've been thinking about this more recently because, I, you know, I have been thinking, why am I writing love poetry? I mean, who am I? Why am I doing this? This is not who I am. But I actually, the, I, the, the reason came to me because after the murder of uh, George Floyd, I was one of the people, amongst many, who went um, and protested at the Forest Recreation Ground. It was, I mean, it was really um, filled with people. And I went, well, of course, we observed social distancing and we had our masks on, etc. And for a tiny moment, I actually saw a glimmer. It was only a tiny moment and it was only a glimmer that, racism could perhaps end for a time because there were so many people on the forest recreation ground uh, and people from all different walks of life academics working class elderly young uh, black white south asian there were so many different people and for me that was the first time I had witnessed the white community standing as allies and in solidarity with the black community around a racial issue. So that was a, 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 an overwhelming moment. And I had a tiny space to breathe. And what I, I can remember saying to myself uh, uh, um, at the forest, if racism ends, well, then what will I write about? What what will I what would I explore, and and I think that that was the seed that made me begin to think. Although I think it's important to narrate uh, racial injustice, I don't want to be bound to do that all the time because then I'm not experiencing the full the full spectrum of who I am and what I can offer the world or exploring greater depth, my poetry, uh, my thoughts and my visions. And so I think I'm going in different directions because um, I need that freedom to explore my creativity as an artist without the restraints on, and shackles of racism holding me back. That makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Do you, ha do you have a favourite poem or a favourite line that you've written? Anything that kind of when you read it makes you, you know, it's very emotive because you've obviously been through a real journey. Yes. Uh, I mean, uh, yes. I mean, oh, does this sound wrong? I have lots of favourite lines in my poetry. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I was, guess I'm, I was trying to extract one yeah, from yeah. you. <laughs> uh, yeah. Oh, no. It'd be very difficult for me to pull one right now at this, at the, at this moment. That's them. my favourite Is poem. that your favourite one? Yes. Um, but I've written a rant poem since then. You haven't seen any of my new work, uh, Sharon. I've written a rant poem. Uh, and there's lines in that that I absolutely love. I've also written a um, uh, recently written a dub poem um, as well, so that's got a nice rhythm to it. We mew for you, we do for you. Sometimes we turn fool for you. It goes like that's the rhythm of that. So um, I'm just exploring and experimenting and being free at the moment. It's really interesting because one of the things um, with performance poetry because you just began to perform there, yes. um, you couldn't help it, um, is that it's really been very difficult to recover that history because there used to be such a lot of performance poetry in Nottingham. And, you know, we went to a lot of it in the 1980s. Panya performed a lot. There is a little video of her actually walking down a Nottingham street looking very young indeed as she chants her poetry. But that's... That's the exception that proves the rule, really, that we have so much we can't recover because pre-internet, everything else, you know, as different kinds of technology, 
die, replaced, replaced so often. We've lost a lot of this. And there's a real difference between poetry on the page and poetry and performance. Mm. And so how you feel in that room or how people join in, as they sometimes do, um, with, with, with the poems, um, that's lost. And so I think it's, it's really important that we try to find some of that history. Mm. I'm wondering whether people have got old videotapes of performance poetry, whether the, you know, they might even donate them to Nottingham Black Archive if they know that they're, they're hanging around somewhere. But that's one of the elements that, um, that we've been talking about quite a lot mm. and just wish that we could recover more of that history. Obviously, both of you have researched for many years in your obviously subject areas. If you were to sort of take all of that, everything you've done, you know, where would you hope that perhaps the next 10 years will take us? Um, I have to say that I am in no way uh, a great researcher like Sharon. Uh, Sharon is a, a distinguished professor and has been researching much more longer than me. And so I, I actually see Sharon more as a mentor. So I'm just going to take that bit out of that question about being uh, a researcher for a very long time. I don't think I, I, I have been. Um, but what would I like to see in the next 10 years? Um, for me, I would like to see um, the black community um, embracing more its the history of uh, it, the, the, their culture here in the city and using it to make forward steps. So th th for me, this is all part of why I'm doing the research that I do, because I, I strongly believe that this knowledge, this knowledge of the past can inform the future. It certainly informs my future. When you, have, when you are armed with uh, this knowledge, so you know more clearly uh, the impact and influence of colonialism on you and how it shapes and misshapes, then you can negotiate and navigate that much more uh, better, I hope. When you know the his that you come from a history of great poets, great orators, singers, musicians, artists, academics, intellectuals, then hopefully that will inspire you to, to move on because we are often told that um, there aren't any black writers or there aren't any uh, black academics or there aren't any black intellectuals. And so if I can present these to the black community, hopefully they will grow in confidence and stature and go on to make changes within the system. So my focus really is um, more on the black community and arming them with the tools they'll need to survive the next decade. That's my focus. So Sharon, as we're leaving Black History Month, you know, what's what's next for you in the research area? What's your next project? My next project has come out of previous ones. It's about the emotional cost of activism. It's about how activists give of themselves and that we don't always recognise that element that that can involve grief, rage, pain, and lots of difficult emotions. And the reason that I want to look at this, it's not inspiring, it would seem. You know, if you're an activist and you're depressed or you're having a breakdown, you know, that's not something that's shared with the, with the groups with, with, who, with which you're working. You know, how can that inspire? But at the same time, I think the, the fact that it's been hidden, that there are costs to activism, you know, often emotional costs, often difficult costs that last a long time. You know, sometimes um, in, in, 
the case of trauma, but that's not a word that I'm, I'm using in particular. I'm trying to be more precise about different emotions. I'm looking at that, and one of the reasons that I am is um, that one of the activists I wrote about in SNCC was incredibly important um, across the 1960s. And I came across him because he was the first person to write a novel as an activist about the civil rights movement. And he published it in 1969. A British publisher, an English publisher, um, perhaps difficult to publish in the US, I don't know, but we don't know that publishing history. But I do know that he wrote that novel at the end of his time as an activist and he'd begun as a freedom rider and all the way across the 60s he wrote journalism, news articles, he was a labour activist, he was really important. But then he fell away, he had a personal crisis, he left the movement. At the moment that he was breaking down, if you like, um, he was trying to put together a black publishing house um, and he didn't manage to do that. He was clearly an activist, but also a literary activist. And I wanted to know what had happened to him. And I found out, just as my book was coming out, that he was in a halfway house in Atlanta, Georgia. That he was living in this place because um, it was supporting people with issues of mental health and uh, drug addiction issues. And... I wanted him to read that I'd, my book. I wanted him to read the chapter about him. I wanted him to know that his he'd been valued and his writing had been valued. Um, so I, I visited, and when I visited, he was no longer there. He'd been removed. I think I, I can't remember what he'd done. Maybe he'd smoked in his room, or it, some for some reason he was no longer there. And I left the book for him. I'd never expected to hear from him. It wasn't about that. It was a way of saying thank you, uh, in a sense, and, and you were valued. Um, but then I think I found an obituary online. And I do think that there are people that we've taken less account of because he was not on the activist circuit. He wasn't giving lectures. He wasn't turning up at reunions. People like that can fall away and they get forgotten. And I don't want to forget him. So I do want to think a little bit more in ways that may be useful to contemporary activists too, um, about how you fight, how it, it can take an emotional toll, that it can tire you, it can weary you. That has a lot to do with black history. It also has a lot to do with activists of other races and ethnicities too. Um, but it came out of that feeling that we don't always see into all the corners of, of the history that we try to recoup. And some of them are difficult to see into than others. And, and privacy is a big issue in that, that, you know, maybe we shouldn't see into all the corners. But I want to at least think philosophically, ethically, morally about, you know, how we might do that. Um, perhaps see these... Um, activists who were damaged by their experience in the movement on equal memorial terms with other activists whose names we know. Well thank you both so much for joining us and sharing your wealth of experience and knowledge. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. If you'd like to find out more about Panya or Sharon's work please have a look in the episode description.
You've been listening to the Research Reimagine podcast by Nottingham Trent University. For all of the latest news from the research community at NTU, follow us on Twitter at NTU underscore research or sign up to our research newsletter by visiting ntu.ac.uk forward slash research. Thanks for listening.